HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely day in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we're going to get a little wild. We're going to get a little crazy. Um, We're delving deep into the world of wild blueberries with with Dr. Dave Yarborough. He's a wild blueberry specialist at the University of Maine. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I thought we would start really, you know, at the beginning, you know, what, what, what is in a name? Um, when we're talking blueberries, um, you know, what are we talking about? There's wild blueberries, there's cultivated, cultivated blueberries and, and bilberries. So maybe you can kind of break down um, generally kind of the differences between the varieties before we forge ahead in the wild vein. Okay, sure. Uh, it, uh, as you say, it, do, it does get complicated in the sense that when you look at the blueberries themselves, really, the uh, the big difference is size. Uh, cultivated blueberry is a blueberry that has been selected from the wild and bred and is found in plantations really throughout the world because it's very easily propagated by uh, hardwood cuttings. You can take a cutting, put it in the ground, in three to five years uh, have a blueberry crop. The wild blueberry is, is very different in that really has a very limited geographic uh, distribution. Maine and Atlantic Canada really is where you found, uh, find most of the wild blueberries. Although uh, wild blueberries and, and their cousins, their European cousins, would be uh, the bilberry, which is a smaller version of, of our wild blueberry. And that's really found around the world. You can find it in Newfoundland, Alaska, China, Europe. And uh, that's what the, really the Europeans were looking at uh, when they came over to North America. They found a, a very similar version to their uh, bilberry, uh, the North American wild blueberry. And this is, um, this is a low-growing plant. Uh, it's um, a low-bush type, as the European type is a, is a low-bush type. 
cultivated blueberries uh, typically in the north. Uh, the northern highbush blueberries grow from oh, around six feet or, or more high. Uh, as you get further into the south, we have varieties called rabbit eye blueberries, which is another type of highbush, and these can get up to 30 feet. Uh, these are very vigorous in growth and and they also have uh, smaller fruit, but uh, these have been selected, uh, again, and bred uh, from wild plants to produce uh, a much larger fruit. So fruit size is a, is a big issue. Also, uh, the utilization is very different. If you look at the wild blueberry, it's essentially an ingredient. It's something that we harvest uh, once over, uh, one-time harvest, and uh, within 24 hours uh, pretty much freeze them. 99% of the wild blueberries are frozen, whereas the cultivated blueberries really have been uh, selected and bred for a much larger size of peel, ease of harvest, and, and principally these go more than maybe uh, 60% or so go right into the fresh market. So when you go to the supermarket, you tend to see the plastic containers with the, the larger blueberries, and, and these are the cultivated or high bush. Um, typically, uh, geographical distribution of the wild blueberry is fairly limited. Um, might get some into New York, but pretty much to just uh, New England, Atlantic Canada, Quebec, uh, maybe over into Ontario a little bit. Uh, you could get some uh, fresh wild blueberries, but uh, they're very scarce and very hard to find. And uh, we find that when you do freeze them uh, right away, that they retain their nutrition and flavor. So we don't feel we're really at a disadvantage of that. So my, I was going to say, go so like my, my like uh, drives up through Maine in the late summer, stopping to uh -huh. pick, you know, a, a quart or so of blueberries off the side of the road, that really only accounts for around 1% of, of sales is the fresh consumption. 99% of the berries are frozen for later use. Correct. Yes. There's several large freezers, uh, both in Maine and Atlantic Canada. There's only about a half dozen outlets uh, that they go through this because the, you know, the the amount of uh, money to to set up one of these freezers goes into the tens of millions and then storage uh, along with that. So it's pretty expensive to to set up an operation like that. Um, but the roadside that you you see driving up through Maine, uh, yes, that's 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 really a very very limited amount. In Maine, uh, on the average now, we produce about 85 million pounds of blueberries. So we have a fairly intense period of, uh, you know, uh, five or six weeks that we're harvesting in through the latter part of July into August, usually about up as far as Labor Day. Atlantic Canada goes a little bit further. They, they also um, have wild blueberry harvest, and, and they go into September and October even, maybe up, in, up into Newfoundland. So there are some later harvest there, but uh, principally they all go into the freezer and they're all sold as, as, as a wild blueberry product, either from Maine or Atlantic Canada or Quebec. Well, so I, I'm reading here on, the, on your website that Maine produces 15% of all blueberries in North America. That's, that's wild and cultivated, but it's the largest producer of wild blueberries in the world. And, and I just can't help but wonder, like, w you know, why is that? Is it the soil? Is it the climate? Is it kind of some historical factor? What, what's the explanation behind the, in, you know, so much production being concentrated in that one area? Well, certainly uh, you hit it all three uh, of those factors. Uh, Historically, uh, along the coast of Maine, well, actually, uh, I, I didn't really start at the beginning uh, when I when I started my explanation. But the, really, the beginning uh, really deals with our last glacial period, 
that period when the glacier was sitting over Maine, there was a mile of ice. And as that uh, glacier receded back and forth, it ground up the rocks into sand. So along our coast, we have very deep uh, glacial outwash plains, which are not very not very fertile and not very good for many other things. But the wild blueberries uh, are actually very good early colonizers. They have a, a mycorrhizal association and roots with fungi that allow them to extract to mineral nutrients out of uh, out of very poor soils, and and they're really very good survivors. They they're able to uh, get into these uh, situations where there's not much uh, water or or food, and and they can colonize and establish themselves. And and even when the forest uh, grows over them, they survive really well in the understory. And uh, once this forest gets uh, cleared again. Uh, they can come back uh, because they're they're really vegetative and an underground rhizome. Instead of growing up, they tend to grow out um, and uh, under underneath the ground. Two thirds of the plants underneath the ground. So it was established early during the glacial periods. Um, they survived in the forest, and as these forests were burned over by the Native Americans, or when they early Europeans came in and they found this wood and they harvested the woods, they opened up these areas of uh, blueberries, what they call blueberry barrens. Uh, They tried to grow peas and strawberries and everything else here, and and nothing really worked very well because they were very acidic and and very poor nutrients. But the blueberries survived, and they did well. And and earlier on, this is really the, the beginning of the blueberry industry around the period of Civil War before the cultivated blueberry actually became established. Uh, they weren't really uh, begun until the 1920s. Actually, the wild blueberry was the blueberry of the United States and, and really the only one that was here. And and it has to do with the soils, very acidic, well-drained, uh, poor nutrient soils. Also, the climate, our cold winters, um, you know, with snow cover, allow the blueberries to survive under the snow and, and do fairly well. And, and along the coast hasn't really been disturbed or developed. There's a lot of uh, very vast uh, areas of land which are uh, are not under development, uh, like many areas of, of the U.S. Uh, there used to be blueberries down in Connecticut. Now they're pretty much all house lots down there where the areas were growing for blueberries because it's also a very good growing uh, condition. So really it's it's part of the, the history of the geography um, Industry itself uh, started. Even even blueberries uh, were shipped down to the to the troops in the Civil War by uh, by schooners, and that the, the rivers and the ocean really were the main highways back then. So it got a, a foothold then, and uh, we've been successful enough to uh, improve our production practices so that we can still remain competitive with the cultivated blueberries, which are really not only grown throughout the United States but uh, virtually throughout the world. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about those management practices. I mean, I grew up in northern Michigan, and I have to tell you, I hated picking wild blueberries because that meant we, you know, got in the car and drove out into the middle of the woods somewhere, and we're kind of foraging around in between the trees, kind of picking for what felt like, you know, hours and hours and hours to my 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 younger self for, for very, you know, not not a lot of yield, whereas when we went across the state over to Traverse City and we're picking from the cultivated bushes, you know, I, I could see a lot of success really quickly. And so, you know, when you say wild, I think people make this assumption that it's it's uh, unmanaged, but that's not really the case. I mean, I know looking just at um, production levels in Maine over, over the last uh, 
almost a century now, it seems that there's been periods where you've seen dramatic, you know, growth from, you know, by, by millions and millions of pounds of berries. And like I'm looking in particular at, you know, the 1990s and then, you know, points in the 1960s where, where production really, really expanded. And I hope you can talk a little bit about how management practices have changed over the years and kind of explain why we would see such dramatic increases in specific years. Sure. I think what, what you were doing is really you were picking from wild blueberries in the wild. And usually, um, you know, you're lucky if you get maybe 300 pounds an acre out or something like that. And when you compare those cultivated, and if we were still at that stage with our wild blueberry production, we'd be out of business. I mean, we, we, we couldn't compete with the cultivated blueberries at that point. Um, most of what you get from the wild blueberries principally is the pruning practice is, is the number one practice. And we used to burn the fields over, and this would take off the two-thirds of the top of the plant, and it would encourage new growth, and we'd have one year without any production, and the second year we would get uh, much larger production. So this uh, this gives us kind of a fallow year and also uh, breaks uh, insect and disease cycle. So we've got a good manage or good uh, pest management uh, technique kind of built in there with burning we also uh, burned up a lot of the debris of insects and and any diseases in the soil which is a positive thing but it's getting much too expensive to do that nowadays and there's also liabilities involved if the fires get away from you and burn up your neighbor's house and uh, so so really we've gotten away from burning we, we find that if we prune the plants to within one inch of the ground, we can get the same effect. We get this rejuvenation of growth. That's number one. Number two really has to do with the weeds, and, and the weeds uh, are very competitive. Uh, as I said, blueberries are a great survivor, but really they're lousy competitors. They're low-growing. They don't grow very fast. So a lot of things can grow up above them and shade them out and reduce the productivity. So we have a combination of, of cultural and chemical uh, methods we use. Uh, we do use uh, some herbicides pre-emergence uh, that first year before there's any crop. We've also done some research with organic management, and we found that uh, blueberries really do very well at a low pH, and this is a low pH going down to about 4. And uh, not many plants, uh, weeds, do so well at that pH, so we're adding sulfur to our soils to reduce the pH, and basically what this does is gives the advantages to the blueberries uh, versus the weeds. And also the chemical herbicides that we do use, uh, when we, if we'd use them every other year, uh, they would also selectively take out a lot of the competitive species that would uh, uh, reduce the yield. So with that, we've given the blueberries a chance, really, and, and even a chance to uh, provide some extra nutrients or nutrients needed to, to fill in a little bit better and grow and, and make them more competitive. Uh, normally, if you'd apply any kind of fertilizers with, without any kind of weed control plan, you'd just grow more weed. So this really enabled us to, to produce a much larger crop. And that first big uh, increase that we had in, basically in the 1970s was really a direct result is, uh, to the, the use of, of these materials, the herbicide materials. The next really step is once you get the plant up there and healthy is that you really need to have it pollinated. And pollination is really one of the major uh, limiting factors of blueberries. In our fields, native pollinators maybe will give us a 1,000 pounds an acre of blueberries. 
But if we want to get our blueberry yields up to, you know, three, six, nine, twelve thousand pounds an acre, then we really have to bring in pollinators. And uh, Maine is the second largest uh, user of honeybees in the U.S. Almonds kind of uh, beats us out, certainly uh, hands down. But Maine brings in, I think last year we had uh, 74,000 hives of bees. Uh, so these bees uh, enable the fruit to get pollinated, and uh, with a reduction in, in weed competition, uh, that also uh, allows us to give us much greater productivity. Uh, the other limiting factors would be uh, disease and insects, and we've got a very good uh, integrated pest management program. There's a mummyberry disease that we see that causes the blighting of the plants, which is like the potato blight kills the plants right back to the ground. Um, we have uh, weather stations out uh, to look at the conditions for moisture and temperature. Any given year, we know uh, when the, the uh, conditions are right for um, disease, and we can protect the plants. Uh, generally, one or two sprays. Usually, uh, last year, we just got away with uh, actually one spray to protect the plant. And having one fungicide spray every other year is, is actually a pretty good record, I think, in, in minimizing that. Insect pests uh, really are something that we have to uh, monitor for, both chewing insects and, and fruit fly pests uh, that do come in. We have uh, trapping systems, and uh, we go out and use uh, these butterfly nets to sweep to, to see if there are insects in the fields. And we, and we can find if they are there and if they're in sufficient concentrations to cause harm to the blueberries, then, then we can go out and spot treat those areas and, and try to minimize the amount of, uh, again, insecticides that we put down. But we do uh, find that if we don't protect the crop, we can uh, lose productivity uh, on the plants. Well, we have to take just a short break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about who who the kind of we is in your statements and with regards to kind of ownership uh, of the berry patches. So hang tight. We'll take a sure. short break and we'll be right back. Okay. I don't go in for understanding when you are away. Can't use my heart to think away the time in my room I will await. You're listening to Josephine by the Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network. Org. Stay tuned for more from the Farm Report. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain. How they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio is like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I tune in, I learn something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. All right, we are back. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Dave Yarborough, wild blueberry specialist up at the University of Maine. 
So, you know, there's a lot in my head, I guess, when I'm thinking about uh, wild blueberries with regards to um, the, the physical location and some of the history, it's reminding me a lot of uh, maple syrup production. And, uh, and I know in, in maple syrup production, folks often kind of lease out their land to people who collect the sap to make syrup. And I'm wondering for blueberries, kind of how, how does that work? If someone's a wild blueberry, you know, quote unquote, farmer, um, how, what's the kind of standard model for that, and, and how many kind of players are we talking about in Maine? Okay, uh, it's kind of a, a funny situation. We have about 500 small blueberry growers in Maine. We also have a half dozen large processor uh, growers as well. So some of the processor growers, um, one company is in excess of 15,000 acres, another company 8,000 acres, most growers, I think when I did my survey, the average was 87 acres, but, you know, there's really, I could count on uh, both hands the number of people that have uh, 1,000 acres or so. Most of them are, are pretty small, um, under 50 acres. Um, these don't tend to be diversified farms. Uh, they tend to be uh, fields that are scattered throughout the woods in Maine, uh, down east. Um, Hancock and Washington counties are easternmost counties. Principally between the, the roads Route 9 and, and Route 1, there's a large uh, a large blueberry barren area in there. And probably 80% of, of all the wild blueberries come from that, um, mostly otherwise uh, along the coast, all the, all the way along the coast of, of Maine, and uh, some a uh, little bit inland and around uh, uh, South Paris area or Kingfield area, there's a couple small uh, fields. So, so a lot of small growers, um, a couple of very large processors. Um, actually, the two largest fruit farms in the United States are Cherryfield Foods and, and Wyman's, uh, uh, even bigger than fruit farms in California. Wow. Mm. Well, that's a surprise. So, you it know, we, you know, we've talked about kind of all, all the steps to take care of the blueberries and kind of, um, you know, maximize production. Um, but I want to come back to like me as an eight year old girl picking berries in the woods. Um, I, I know that's not how you're harvesting there. So can you talk us through the harvesting methods and what that equipment looks like and, and the timing of that process? Oh sure, yes. The the harvesting, really, the the blueberries uh, are harvested um, on smaller fields and rockier fields still with uh, a, a, what they call a blueberry rake. It kind of looks like a a dustpan with a handle on backwards with uh, these spring steel teeth, or or for anybody who's familiar with a cranberry scoop, it has uh, has these tines, and you push it in under the bushes and pull it backwards, and the berries all come off. So you don't individually pick the berries themselves. You're kind of raking raking through the berries. And this this particular concept has uh, been mechanized. Uh, back in the 50s, I looked at vacuum cleaners and other things and found that, you know, the berries got embedded with uh, with sand and, and weren't edible. So they, they still use this rake concept. There's a kind of a real type Harvester that rakes through and the berries fall off on conveyor belts and, and go back into, into boxes. Um, they used to rake them into individual buckets. Uh, now, uh, the smaller fields rake them into, uh, they're about half bushel boxes. About 25 pounds of blueberries go into a box. Um, the machines themselves have, uh, heads, picking heads maybe three foot wide. Uh, they're mounted on, uh, 100, hour, 100 horsepower tractors. Usually a person or two on the back uh, handling the boxes, and now they have new machines that have uh, 
very large bins on the back uh, so that you can just have one operator inside an air-conditioned uh, cab uh, that's harvesting. They put maybe 300 pounds uh, per box in each box uh, back there, drop them in the field, and they're picked up by an excavator. And we also now harvest 24 hours. They've uh, leveled the field such that they can uh, drive these mechanical harvesters over the field and reach the blueberries without the rocks and, and the gullies. And this enables them to harvest at night, which is more efficient, and also it's better for the quality of the berries. Uh, cooler temperatures firm those berries up and and and, uh, and retains the quality versus uh, raking during a, during the hot weather. So these all go into uh, refrigerated reefers. Uh, they're they're driven to the processing plants, and as I said, within 24 hours, they're uh, usually frozen, and then they keep for even several years. Uh, sold to you know, 30-pound boxes to restaurants. Um, they sell to big vendors like Duncan Hines and Duncan Donuts, uh, accounts like that. And so these, these really go into uh, into all sorts of jams, jellies, yogurts. Muffins is still the, the number one blueberry product, I think, uh, out there that, that, that the wild blueberry goes into as well. So, yes, it's a, it's a different world where, you know, we had uh, 10,000 people come into Maine hand harvesting. Now there's probably less than a thousand and maybe uh maybe uh, three four hundred machines doing it so i i'm just curious the the kind of wild in the wild blueberries i mean is that referring to the the genetics then of the berry okay. yeah that's confusing to people you say you're doing all this management uh, why why is it wild well you know it's kind of like the you know, if you if you take something from the wild and you give it a name and you give it a home and you propagate it and you breed it to make it something different, then it becomes domesticated. And uh, more or less, the USDA also calls wild blueberries tame blueberries, and that we're really taking a plant that established itself from a seed uh, maybe hundreds uh, hundreds of years ago uh, is growing uh, out and was growing wild when we find it. What we've done is we've cleared away the trees, we've cleared away the weeds, uh, we've provided it with uh, a way to compete better, and uh, the genetics of the plant aren't any different at all. Generally, in a cultivated field, you go in, you'd find maybe, um, you know, three or four different uh, varieties in the field, and so you'd have three or four flavors. In wild blueberry fields, uh, the plants themselves can be the size, you know, a, a very small seedling up to one plant can be the size of a football field. And what you have is hundreds or thousands of different varieties in the field. And so when they harvest these berries, you get a mixture of the genetics, you get a mixture of the flavors, you get the tart, you get the sour, you get the sweet all together. And, and this gives you a much more complex mix of, of, of berries that you really can't duplicate in a, in a cultivated situation. Even if you were to plant the culti- plant uh, cultivated lobus blueberries, um, you would have a situation that would be more similar to the cultivated highbush than it would be in wild fields because of that tremendous amount of genetic variability we have out there. We have berries that go from a very light blue to, to black uh, and even some white berries in our fields. So that was actually my, one of my next questions is mm-hmm. re, re, with regards to the safety of the blueberry supply, because it is so concentrated geographically, um, it sounds like the genetic diversity within the fields is is a protective element. Um, and then obviously kind of the management, but, 
you know, is that is that a concern or how much of a concern is it um, based on kind of the factors you've already outlined for us? Well, you know, they, they do have, uh, I mean, there is wildlife in the field, uh, but uh, the good news is we got very large fields and it tends to be more diverse. We have, you know, bears and turkeys and, uh, you know, all sorts of animals out there, but it's pretty diverse. When, when we do process the fruit themselves, they're harvested, uh, they go through a blower, they go through a washer, they go through several wash tanks. And so they, they really are uh, cleaned, and uh, in, any debris, uh, foreign debris, is taken out of them. Mm. They even go through uh, laser scanners now that take out the, the unripe berries, and they're picked over. So it's really a very, very high degree of quality. Uh, you know, a lot of the blueberries that we sell go to Europe and even Japan, and they expect uh, an extraordinary amount of quality, high quality uh in, in their products. So that's really improved our, our processing, and, and I think we've got um, world-class uh, processing plants in Maine and oh. Atlantic Canada to, to provide that. I actually meant, I actually meant, I mean, w- which is great, because I, uh, of course, like, it's good to know that the, the blueberries are coming through the supply chain uh, in a safe mm-hmm. manner, but I actually meant, okay. like, the, 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 because all of the blueberries are concentrated uh are you know is there you know i just thinking about like the uh, irish potato famine where it's like too much of one thing in one space like is there any concerns with the safety of us losing the blueberry population to something specific because it's so concentrated does that I, make I don't sense think, yes yes okay. i understand what you mean and the and the uh the real problem with the irish potato famine is they had one uh, one particular, I think it was a lumpy variety or something of potato. So the genetics were basically exactly the same right. for all, you know right. everywhere. Here in Maine, we have very diverse genetics, and and even with diseases, if we if we don't treat the field, you see some of the plants get hit by disease and others don't because they're maturing at different times or they have different uh, amounts of susceptibility. And and you say it's concentrated, but it's concentrated from Maine up through Atlantic Canada. So we're talking maybe 300 miles along the coast of Maine and, and another, you know, four or 500 miles up through Canada. So although it's concentrated, it's even harvested it over probably our uh, eight-week period, a six, eight-week period. Got it. So Got it. it's not really all in one spot, although, you know, it's not like being in, in Oregon and uh, in, in Florida. You know, it's, uh, it, it, is, it is fairly geographically the same. Environment, but generally, you know, if we one area like Quebec has a frost, uh, we 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 don't. Uh, so we we're not that concentrated that we're going to have a crop failure. Uh, who knows what's happened with the you know with the with the climate issues and the the weather is certainly has been much more variable, and we've had issues with uh, frost in the spring and. Actually, it's increased the productivity of, of the plants, I think, in, in Canada. And also in Maine, we've got much longer springs. I, I did some uh, work and uh, found that we have actually have probably uh, at least one month longer growing season than we had in the 1950s in Maine. Wow. So, uh, wow, this that's is, huge. This is good for the plants, but also uh, then the insects and diseases also do pretty good, too. So <laughs> Trade-offs. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get one without the other, I guess. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to touch briefly on, on, on two issues. One is cost and the other is nutrition. But I think we'll start with cost because 
on that same, I mean, I'm looking at from your website where where there's tons of great information on the blueberries. I'm looking at the wild blueberry crop statistics, and there is kind of like the the it looks like the, I think the price per pound variability over the years. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how blueberry prices get set and, and what are the factors that kind of contribute to prices going up or down aside from, you know, obviously like volume of production. Uh, well, actually, it's a couple things. Uh, it, volume of production really is the key factor because we're talking supply and demand. So if you have a very large uh, flood of blueberries onto the marketplace, uh, coming either, you know, if it's coming from Canada or it now coming up from Chile, uh, we've seen uh, them increase their export market even into the frozen market. And, and, and then the other end is sales. So if you've got a lot of blueberries coming on the market and nobody buys them, then that also depresses the price. Certainly the second factor, the nutrition and the antioxidants, are really what been driving the demand and increasing the demand over the years. We've seen uh, blueberry production go up, uh, you know, triple, quadruple over the past 20 years in the U.S., both cultivated and wild. And a lot of that demand has been driven by the antioxidant content of wild blueberries. And these are, you know, attributed to uh, anti-aging, uh, anti-cancer, uh, even help with uh, diseases like diabetes and Alzheimer's. And kind of the fountain of youth, it's, it's, a, it's almost too good to be true. Uh, Jim Joseph, a researcher from Tufts University, called the wild blueberry the brain berry. Uh, because it's really good for uh, your health and, and cognition as well. So, you know, really uh, the price has gone up and down, and it really has been partly to the success of us being able to produce more blueberries, uh, put those blueberries on the marketplace. But if you get a, a very large increase in a short amount of time, uh, then that kind of distorts uh, the supply chain and that depresses the price as well. So. We'd like uh, an even supply, but uh, Mother Nature really doesn't uh, supply that. Some years we have uh, frost or drought, and, and the production goes down, so the price goes up. Other years we have abundant production, so that tends to flood the market with more blueberries, and that depresses the price. So while blueberries have done pretty good in, in uh, keeping uh, a really a premium over the cultivated blueberries because uh, we feel they're a superior product, a better flavor, uh, Better for you, the about twice as many antioxidants as the cultivated blueberries, but all blueberries are good for you, uh, and uh, we feel that uh, this is really what's been supporting uh, the growth of the blueberry industry in, in the U.S. and the world. So what is, I mean, for, for folks who aren't lucky enough to live in Maine or be traveling through during blueberry season, is there a way, I mean, what's the best way for us to make sure, like, the, the maximum amount of our dollars are going back to Maine producers or to look for Maine blueberries in particular? Um, are there kind of buying direct kind of clubs or mail orders, or is it just kind of going into the supermarket and <clears throat> assuming that the wild blueberries are from Maine and, and that's good enough? Well, if you go, and, and it really, Maine or Canada, it's the same fruit, uh, same industry, uh, but you've got, to, you've got to start looking in a different place. Everybody goes and looks for blueberries in the fresh market. Uh, what you need to do is come back around into the freezer on the other end, and uh, Wyman's is a retail pack, and there's also some Canadian's Nature's Place, I guess, or 
that 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 have a frozen berry, and this frozen berry really uh, is better than those berries coming up from Chile in the winter time. You see these little packets. Uh, the the value is much better. Uh, the nutrition is much better than these fresh berries that might have been sitting on a ship uh, for a month coming up uh, under control atmosphere. These have been taken out of the field and frozen at the peak of ripeness and. And the nutrients and the value and the flavor is much better in the wild blueberry. So just start looking in the freezer case. And if it's not there, just uh, start asking the store to start stocking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us the the lowdown on wild blueberries. I think we can all walk away feeling um, a little bit like experts. So appreciate you taking the time out today. Very good. Glad to do it anytime. For folks who want to uh, learn more about blueberries, definitely check out the, the University of Maine website. It's the letter U, maine.edu backslash blueberries. And then, of course, um, you can tune in next week for another episode of The Farm Report. We'll be talking with Olivia Blanche Flower of Grow NYC's Co., the new uh, farmer distribution market up in Hunts Point. So stay tuned for that. This uh, show, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free uh, from our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Definitely, if you believe in what you're hearing, uh, click that Donate tab. Become a member today. At the 120 level, we'll send you one of our awesome new tote bags. You can also find our programs by streaming through Stitcher Smart Radio and on iTunes. Um, Just find them. Keep tuned in. Keep listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, the first cheesemaking co-op in Vermont. For more information, visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, another week, another Grow NYC Market Update. Today we're on the line with Carolyn. Where are we heading? Hey, Erin. Today we're going to head on up to the Upper East Side, where our 92nd Street Market sets up every Sunday on 1st Avenue between 92nd and 93rd Streets. Uh, this seasonal market is situated on quiet, mostly residential neighborhoods, so it provides residents a pretty convenient place to shop for a variety of fruits, vegetables, eggs, baked goods, and fresh fish. Um, we partner with Upper Greenside to promote the market and also run a recycling collection there um, of items not recycled curbside by the city, so batteries, Brita filters, quartz, cork, CDs, um, and cell phones. And, of course, market shoppers can drop off their food scraps here for compost at the sustainability tent every Sunday. Excellent. And what uh, farmers or products should we be on the hunt for? 
Yeah, the the market has a really nice balance of produce, baked goods, and protein. Um, Standard brings veggies and orchard fruit from Washington County in New York, um, while Gonzalez Farm offers beautiful vegetables and some Mexican Mexican specialty products like Popolo, um, which is one of my favorite herbs. It's really unique and kind of tastes like cilantro. Um, And then routing out the produce on offer at this market is Phillips Farms. Um, They're bringing vegetables from New Jersey and also Norwich Meadows, which has some beautiful certified organic vegetables as well. Um, American Seafood brings fresh wild-caught fish and shellfish in from Long Island, um, which is a really nice treat to be able to have on a Sunday on the Upper East Side. Um, Unfortunately, they won't be attending this coming weekend, but they'll be there every following Sunday um, all through the fall. Of course, we can't forget about Meredith's Bakery and Bread Alone. Um, They're both offering freshly baked breads and pastries. I'm personally a sucker for for Bread Alone's morning glory muffin. Um, I just think it's the best way to start the morning at the market. Um, Also, every week, representatives from the NYC Department of Health, um, Stellar Markets, conduct cooking demonstration and nutrition education for market shoppers. Um, The Stellar Markets nutritionists do a really fantastic job of showing shoppers how to use locally grown seasonal produce from the market to make really simple, healthy, and delicious meals. Um, Their demonstrations and their nutrition education workshops are always super engaging, and they go on throughout the market day. Um, Specifically, on Sunday, September 15th, Pam, the market manager, is planning a dog portrait day for (laughs) 92nd Street shoppers, which should be a lot of fun. Um, So make sure to stop by the market information tent to have you and your pooch's photo taken with a really attractive display of the autumn bounty. Oh, nothing. Getting ready for some holiday cards in the future, I think. (laughs) Exactly. So while while we're up in the neighborhood, what else should we be making sure to check out? Well, actually, this coming Sunday, um, the 8th would be a great time to visit because the 3rd Avenue um, will be closed off from 66th Street all the way up to 88th Street for another of NYC's famous street fairs. Um, So we will be setting up a mini pop-up farmer's market within the street fair between 84th and 85th Streets. Um, Beth's Farm Kitchen will be there, Nature's Way Honey, Red Jacket Orchards will be there with their juices and their fruit, and um, Aunt Shirley's Cupcakes will be there as well, so definitely come find us there. Uh, If you're looking to escape from the hustle and bustle of the city, then I would definitely recommend hitting up Carl Schurz Park. Um, It's got this great waterfront promenade right on the East River, and it's also the site of the beautiful Greasy Mansion. Um, When I first started with Green Market, I actually managed our 82nd Street Market on Saturdays. And one day while I was walking home from Market, I stumbled upon Glasser's Bake Shop, which is on 1st Avenue and 87th Street. And it's a traditional German bakery that's been open since 1902 um, and is now still in the family. Um, And they don't make them like this anymore. There's, you know, their sign is this loopy, cursive spelling out glasses across this puce green sign, um, while inside the original white tile floors are still there, and they have these apothecary-style dark wooden cabinets that line the walls. So it's a pretty awesome relic of the neighborhood. Um, their desserts are not for the faint of heart. They're pretty straight-up sugary. Um, so I would recommend the danishes or the pies or the chocolate eclairs. I'm like definitely whipping out my foodie notebook to take note there. Um, Well, thanks so much for giving us the update from there. What, What else is happening this week with regards to events? You guys have some good stuff on the horizon. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, fall is our busiest time of year. Um, this coming Monday, September 9th, we're hosting a back-to-school event at Union Square Green Market. Um, there will be kids' cooking demos, giveaways, tips on how to make healthy lunch with ingredients from the market, and lots of other fun, family-friendly activities. Um, it's free and open to the public, and it also will kick off our Text to Give campaign, um, where we're encouraging everyone to give back to the give back to us the back during this back-to-school season. Um, so from September 8th to 14th, you can donate to Grow NYC education pro- programs from your mobile phone. We're making it very easy. Um, just, just text GROW to 41444 to give a $10 gift. 100% of the gift um, goes towards Grow NYC. Um, and each year, our education programs reach over 20,000 New York City students. So if you want to learn more about our education programs, I would definitely encourage you to visit www.grownyc.org slash education. Um, and then coming up Sunday, September 15th, the Tompkins Green Market is hosting a salsa off. So if you think you have the best salsa recipe in the East Village, definitely sign up to participate um, by emailing the market manager, Kathleen, at kcrosby at grownyc.org. Um, on the horizon, the Union Square Partnership is holding its annual harvest in the square on September 17th, um, so we'll definitely be talking about that more next week. Um, otherwise, you can visit grownyc.org slash rmarkets to find out more about cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, and more happening each week at your neighborhood green market. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the great update, and we'll be sure to be out and about checking out the green market events this weekend. Thanks so much, Erin. For folks out there who want to get the most up-to-the-moment Green Market info, definitely find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever your preferred social media feed is. And, of course, tune in next Thursday for another episode of the GrunYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.